Daniel chapter 9, awesome, awesome. You guys, if you've been here for any number of weeks, you know how excited I am about uh, this passage. So Daniel chapter 9, we're really going to hit a lot of the passage tonight. And let me go ahead and get started here. We're doing a study called Eschaton, little banners right over there, Eschaton has to do with last things. A lot of people would refer to this, uh, to eschatology, as the study of last things, which is really what the words, uh, it's a a compound of two Greek words, that's what it means, uh, last things, the study of last things. Now, we want to put this more in, in in a biblical framework in the sense that we're talking about eschaton in the sense that we're talking about the climax of history. Now, if you've been tracking with us since the very beginning of the study, you know that one of the things that's unique about this study is the fact that we can even talk about it. I mean, we, we have a culture today where our children are raised with the understanding that we are just basically bipedal protoplasm bobbing on the surface of the cosmos. Our kids are taught in public schools that they're the result of neo-Darwinian processes, uh, processes that didn't have them in mind when it began, that we all used to be shellfish, essentially, and that we've crawled out of the soup and fish to philosophers, and bingo, here you go. Here's where you are. Congratulations. You guys are all AP protoplasm. Congratulations. Um, Well, that's the worldview. And so history doesn't really have a a climax. It's just in flux. It's just bouncing around. We're just atoms banging around in the cosmos. I mean, that's really the, the, the worldview. That's the atmosphere we grow up in today. That's what's being taught is that we're all just apes, ultimately. And history is not necessarily going somewhere that's planned. It's just sort of random. And, and part of that randomness is your result of it. And so is broccoli. <laughs> That's just essentially where we are. And so the fact that the biblical worldview can even talk about eschaton, can even talk about a study of the climax of human history, where is history going, it is an amazing thing. And so what we've been doing, and you can get all of the, um, the last sermons, um, Matt DeJesus is, is filming them. They will all ultimately be up on YouTube. But you can go to Apologia Church's sermon.net page, to get the last uh, sermons we've done on this, so you can get caught up with us. But let me just sort of get you where we've been. We've sort of started in Genesis, and we're moving our way throughout the Old Testament. And our contention is this, that the popular view today, and, and it's just, it's, it really is sort of a, um, it's a peculiar thing because it wasn't always this way for Christians. But in the last 200 years, there's been a popular view of end times known as dispensational premillennialism. And most of you know it in here in the American Christian culture as the left behind theology or eschatology. The idea that there's a secret rapture, a seven-year tribulation period, an antichrist figure, uh, two-thirds of the Jews are slaughtered, then Jesus returns for a thousand-year, literal thousand-year reign on earth. Now, I want to suggest to you, uh, first and foremost, I'm sympathetic to that view because I came out of it, okay? But we, we have the perspective, which I think is much more ancient, much more orthodox, much more reformed, much more, I think, biblical, and that is that Christ brought the kingdom on time as planned. And the picture from Genesis to Revelation is, is summed up in Psalm 110, verse 1. And that's the most often quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament. And it is Psalm 110. And that is that this Messiah, Jesus, must reign, and he's reigning now, until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy is death. And so what we've done is we've really sort of taken a bird's-eye view look over the Old Testament 
and just sort of like dragging out a lot of concepts and teachings and promises and prophecies that this Messiah is going to come, that we know everything about him in the sense of redemptive purpose. Now, what, what I mean is this, guys, listen, this is really something spectacular, is that Christians can actually say that God controls all of history, that he declares the end from the beginning, and he determines what is and what isn't. And in the whole process, one of the things that God does, and we talked about this last week, is Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. God does something spectacular. It is unprecedented. It is, it is completely unique to the biblical revelation. And it is this, that God tells the Israelites when he, rede- when he gets them out of Egypt, they cross through that Red Sea. The enemies of God are smashed in that sea. They get over to Sinai. God has now graciously given them his law. And in Deuteronomy, God actually sets down an acid test. How do you know if someone's from God? And the test is essentially this, is if somebody says they're from God and they speak in the name of the Lord and they try to give prophecy of the future, but they fail even one time, they are a false prophet, period. No second chance. You don't get to go, oops, let me try that again. No, you're done. If you say you're from God, you give prophecy, and you fail, you're not from God. And that's a spectacular thing because you've got to consider the fact that this revelation here is about 66 different books and letters. All right? The composition time is about 1,500 years or so in authorship and composition. You've got about 40 different authors writing at times in different geographical locations, eras, time. It's just an amazing revelation. And here's the thing. This book is full. I'm talking chalked full of prophecy of the future. And if you think about the uniqueness of the revelation, as God is saying, is, is here's how you know if someone's from him. Because he's a sovereign God, because he's the God that's the living and true God, the one who actually controls history, he's all powerful. He's like, you want to know if someone represents me? If they try to tell you the future before it happens and it doesn't happen, it's a failed prophecy, that's how you know. Now, amazing because the veracity of this entire revelation is on the line when God says even one false prophecy means what? False prophet, which is saying what? If you could find a single false prophecy in this entire revelation, it renders it void. How do you like that? That God is saying that here's how you know the true and living God. I'm going to tell you the future before it happens. And then God even challenges false gods. Okay, have your gods tell you the future. They can't do it because they don't do a lot of talking and they're not sovereign, right? And so the amazing thing is we've been looking at the Old Testament and what have we seen? We've seen that God lays down for us all the details necessary to know the Messiah. It tells us his death. It tells us his resurrection. It tells us who he is, that he's God come in the flesh. It tells us where he's coming from. It tells us actually when he's coming. It tells us everything necessary to know him as Messiah, as Savior, and as Lord before he even touches the earth in his earthly ministry. Think about that for a second. If you look at your Bible divided into two sections, what are they? What are they? Old Testament and New Testament. Your Old Testament books, our Old Testament books, are books that are letters that are written before Jesus comes. And if you ask the question, how long before Jesus comes are these written? The truth is, hundreds of years. So long before that, listen, we've got the Old Testament, those 39 books, 
being translated from Hebrew into the Greek language in what's called the Septuagint. So we've got the Septuagint, the Hebrew scriptures going into Greek about 200 years before Jesus comes. And I want to suggest something to you. There probably is temptation when someone looks at these kind of prophecies we're going to look at today. There probably is temptation to think that is so clearly Jesus. Somebody must have written that stuff in post Jesus had to be because that's crazy sauce. People have said that, you know, skeptics and critics of the Bible used to claim that they would say, well, clearly Isaiah 53 some, someone knew all of Jesus' life because that's Jesus. Now, Isaiah is written 700 years before Christ. Isaiah 53 tells his life story, his ministry. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. And people have said, that's an interpolation. That someone put that in after the fact. And then along comes the Dead Sea Scrolls. A little shepherd boy named Muhammad is walking along the area of the Qumran. He throws some rocks into caves. They find these pots. And inside the pots were scrolls. And what do they find inside there? Daniel, Isaiah, Psalms, Old Testament books, all kinds of great stuff. And what does it show? The Dead Sea Scrolls were buried about 200 years before Christ. So what I'm going to show you today in Daniel 9 is so spectacular, it, it, should, it should cause fear. A healthy reverence and fear of God to really wash over you. You're going to look today in Daniel 9 at prophecy where God is telling us the story of history, his story of history, his story of redemption before it even happens. And it is amazing. So Daniel chapter 9 is spectacular. Now, I'm going to give you a ba- uh, just a little background in case you're new. I want to make sure I never make an assumption uh, as a pastor that you just know what uh, is going on. I, I, hate, I hate that. Don't you hate that when like, maybe you're a new Christian, you come into a church and the pastor is speaking Christianese, Right. And you're like, I don't even speak Spanish, much less Christianese, right? So like, I'm going to try to give you the background. Daniel is a Jew who was in the the Babylonian captivity. Now, what that means is this. The Jews had a temple and they had a land, okay? But they were breaking their covenant with God, as usual. (laughs) They're breaking covenant with God. And what they were doing is they they were not letting the land rest on the seventh year as a Sabbath kind of rest in that year. And God is calling out to them in repentance, and they won't come, they won't come, they won't come. So God says, fine, you don't want to give the land a rest as a Sabbath rest I I commanded you to do? That's good. You're going to go into exile so I can give the land 70 years of rest. He's going to get his way. (laughs) Right? I mean, to argue with guys, I'll just get you out of the land. I'll give it its rest by itself. Okay? So God tells them, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Jeremiah the prophet is prophesying to them 70 years of captivity. Now listen. As planned, by the way, that's straight up prophecy. 70 year captivity. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most famous kings of ancient history. He was kicking butt, taking names. He had the king of Egypt in his court. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was big time. All right. Now he got the Jews into captivity. They go into exile. And guess what he did to their temple? Destroyed it. Guess what he did to their city? Destroyed it. You ever read Lamentations? Lamentations, like lamenting, like lamentations is like weeping and, and lamenting over the state of Jerusalem. The city's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> VeggieTales. Yes, see, you know. VeggieTales. I can't say the names without going straight up VeggieTales on you. You know what I'm talking about? No one knows the chocolate bunny? Come on. 
Yes, look all like Amy's like, I know, Pastor Jeff, I got you. Okay, at least some of you are tracking with me. VeggieTales, the story where they totally demolish biblical stories and turn them into cartoons. Like that story. Um, so, so Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, the story in Daniel is spectacular. It's, this, it's the book that tells us about Daniel and the lion's den. It's the book that tells us about Nebuchadnezzar, this pompous and arrogant king who demands worship, which, by the, way, by the way, many ancient kings did that. Caligula did that. Nero did that. Nebuchadnezzar did that. It's the book that tells us about Nebuchadnezzar demanding all of Babylon come and bow and worship towards this idol that he set up when they hear the music. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no. And he, he says, I'll give you a second chance. They said, that's cool. We don't need a second chance. We're not going to bow. And the, the whole fiery furnace. This is the book that tells us that. It's the book that tells us there are going to be four major kingdoms in history. Four. Before God sets up his kingdom with his Messiah. Now, if you think about it, how spectacular, spectacular that is in the sense of prophecy, consider for a moment that when Daniel writes... That first kingdom is present. What is it? Babylon. And in Babylon, after that, you have the Medo-Persian. Then you have the Greece, the Greek kingdom. Then you have Rome. Question, when did Jesus enter world history? During the time of Rome. So you see prophecy being fulfilled right there. Daniel 2 tells you four kingdoms. Then God sets up his kingdom during the time of the fourth one. And don't you think that it is straight up awesome? That when Jesus comes in in Mark chapter 1, the first thing he says is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. On time as planned. But now Daniel is in captivity and he realizes in Daniel 9, he's praying to God. So as you open Daniel 9, you can see this. Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to walk you through just briefly. And um, B-Rad, go ahead and pop that first one up for me so everyone can see it. Okay, a little background on Daniel 9. As you open it up, you're going to see in the first few verses that the time was ending for the promised 70-year captivity. So guys, put yourself there for a second. What is God's acid test? False prophecy? You're a false prophet. So when God tells them ahead of time in Jeremiah 25, 8, that they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years, Daniel's there now, their temple's gone, their city's destroyed. There isn't a temple. Daniel realizes that that 70-year prophecy is up. And so the problem here is, is that as Daniel is praying, and you can read this as you read the beginning of Daniel 9, he is he's in agony because he can only appeal at this point, even at the end of this captivity, he can only appeal to God's mercy. He knows that God has said 70 years. He knows that it's going to happen. He knows they're about to go free. But the problem is the Jews haven't learned a thing. They didn't learn anything. And so what he's doing in Daniel chapter 9, after it says that he was realizing the 70 years is up, he was re he's got that from Jeremiah. If you look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 17, uh, sorry, 18, listen to what Daniel says here. He says, listen, my God, and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city called by your name. What he's doing is this. Look, he's saying, God... Please look, look at the desolations. Look at the city called by your name. Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple is gone. God, please remember, please hear, please have mercy. All he can do here is appeal to God for his mercy. He's not bragging on, uh, uh, bragging on his, his, his good deeds or Israel's good deeds. They don't have any. And so what he does is he appeals to God. Look what he says. He says, for we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, 
but based on your abundant compassion. Now, by the way, that has to be something that you just grip right there. You know why? Think about this for a second. What do Christians constantly say to the world? The gospel is about God's grace. It is about his mercy. You got nothing to offer God. Nothing. No one has ever been made right with God through their righteous deeds or the the things they offer to God. Nothing. We can only come to God on the basis of his mercy. Now, that's what Christians are saying post-resurrection. But what do you see Daniel saying 600 years before the death and resurrection of Jesus? The same thing. All we can do is come to this holy God appealing to his mercy, not our righteous deeds. But watch this. He says in verse 19, Lord, hear, Lord, forgive, Lord, listen and act. Look, he says, my God, for your own sake. Do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. I love that, guys. Listen to what Daniel appeals to. By the way, let me just give you a little insight right here. When you pray, pray like that. Pray like that. God, for your name's sake. Because you're calling out to God. This is about your glory. This is about your name throughout the earth. And when you pray, you're praying, God, not because of my righteousness, but because of your mercy and for your name's sake. God, please do this. And Daniel's doing that. Now, here's what's awesome. It says this in verse 20. Why, it says, Daniel's petitioning God for his mercy because they've remained in their sin. And here we go. Third point here. The angel Gabriel delivers God's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now, Gabriel is an extremely reliable source of information. Okay, we all need to listen when Gabriel talks. Gabriel comes, and here's what Gabriel says. Verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before Yahweh my God, concerning the holy mountain of my God, While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now watch this. Daniel's giving you a little insight here. He's praying and asking, God help, please God, hear us God for your namesake. And he's weary. It's now time for the evening offering. So he is like tired. You ever prayed like that? You ever prayed like that? Let me tell you a little story. I got a friend named Tony. He is like crazy. I I mean like Seriously, like we used to joke that Tony has like a cell phone straight to God because like it's the weirdest things that happen with this guy. He'd pray for something and it was like instant. Well, I'll, t- I'll give you a little insight, a little story to tell you how cool this is. Uh, Tony, one, uh, Candy and I were like, hey, I would love to. I hadn't seen Tony in years. I was like, I'd love to see Tony again. God, it'd be great if I could see Tony again, Lord. I just really wanted some encouragement. He's such an encouragement. Let me, I just wish I could find Tony. I don't even know if he still lives here. So we pray. It'd be great if we could find Tony again. And no joke, that day we decided to just drive around, do some hanging out as a family. We end up on a side of town we're never in. We end up stopping at a store we never go to. And we're like, oh, let's just go here. Oh, we're bored. Let's go. And as soon as I walk in, I open the door. There's stinking Tony sitting, not like chilling on his own. He's sitting there facing the door, right? The cafe's behind him. He's facing the door in a chair. His legs spread open with his Bible, looking at the door. I walk in. He goes, all right, what's up? I was like, what? What's going on? He goes, I was just driving down the road, and I was inside of town, and I felt like the Lord was telling me you need to stop right here, and you need to sit in this chair. And I sat down, so what's up? I was like, that's awesome. I want that cell phone because it's awesome. But here's the reason I bring that up to you guys. Is you talk about Tony and these kind of, I got hundreds of stories with Tony. I'm telling you, the guy is just amazing. But the amazing thing about this prayer life of Tony is that this guy would be like, hey, Jeff, let's get everyone together and do all night prayer. And we're like, all, all night? <laughs> all, all night? All night? He, and he, he meant all night. <laughs> 
And it was awesome. It was really years and years and years ago that Tony taught me to pray like that. We would get to my house. We would eat food. We'd just get on our faces. We'd pray and we'd pray and we'd pray and pray and pray. And by the time the sun's coming up, you're just like in this, wow, God is incredible. And you would pray and you would get tired, but it was an amazing moment with God and his people. And Daniel's got that kind of prayer going on. He is weary. He's exhausted. And in comes Gabriel. And the story goes, 21, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness. By the time of the evening offering, he gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out. And I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. And I love it, love it, love it. You can look in the next chapter, chapter 10. He's praying for three weeks. Three weeks, guys. Three weeks. And Gabriel shows up again after that prayer. It was like, yeah, when you started praying, God had already sent me out like to come talk to you. And you got to love it. Like Daniel sitting here, pray, God, please help God, please, for your namesake. But the, God had already given the, had the answer prepared. Like Gabriel was sent as soon as Daniel started praying. And some of us are like, why isn't God listening? He's so far away. So sometimes the prayer has already been answered. Amen. And it's just you got to wait. Just relax. All night prayer. Okay, so here we go. So the angel Gabriel delivers God's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Now, this is incredible. I want you just to make a note. We did it last week. Luke 1.26. Who is the angel that God sends to tell Mary about Jesus? Gabriel. Gabriel is the, is the angel that God sends to tell Daniel of the 70 weeks. And Gabriel is the same angel that God sends to tell Mary, here's the Messiah. Same messenger. Now, the prophecy of the 70 weeks is incredible. It is absolutely astonishing. I want you to consider a couple things in your mind here today, guys. Listen closely, because listen, if you don't get everything in this, there are certain parts of this that you absolutely cannot forget. It's easy and it's incredible. It really does. When I sit and meditate on it and I ponder it, there there was times last week where I had chills my whole body in private conversation with God, just in prayer, just dwelling on this, how astonishing this is. So Daniel 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, I want you to consider for a moment that there is no temple. There is no city. They are now in exile. They're about to get released. And now here comes Gabriel to tell him this prophecy. I'm going to read it to you. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To bring the rebellion to an end. I like this translation better. To finish the transgression. To put put an end to sin. To wipe away, to make an end of sin. To wipe away iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. Now here's what you got. Watch. If you guys are recording in your Bibles now. You can take your pen or pencil or whatever. And you can sort of like circle 924, that gives you the bulk of this redemptive prophecy, okay? So 924 really tells you the six major redemptive promises in this. So if like, if you're trying to categorize it or put it together, 924 is the bulk. It's the six promises, redemptive promises. So put that right there up front. Now watch this. No one understands. Daniel, don't just know this understand this. God's coming to bring understanding from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, stop. What does that mean? 
It means that God is setting and fixing for us in history as a matter of record. He's issuing right here. This is where you start counting at this point. When the decree goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's when you can start counting. Okay? So God is putting himself on the line here. He's telling you not a random thing, but when this decree goes out, you start counting. Now watch what it says. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Messiah the what? Say it with me, guys. I need you to know this. Messiah the what? I gotta, can't forget that part. Messiah the Prince. Now talk about specificity. This isn't like Nostradamus-type prophecies. I said last week they're totally malleable. You can do whatever you want with them, right? I mean, you see some of these, these, these hacks and charlatans and con artists, like, just taking money from people. Like, you ever see them, like, work the audience, the guys that go up there, and they're like, uh, does somebody in here have a, a relative that died? <laughs> oh, you, sir, you've had a relative. Was, it was a man or a woman? Oh, it's a, a woman. That's what I, I, I sensed that. It was a woman. And, and there was something uh, painful in this person's life at some point. Right, 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 right. And the name uh, started with, uh, it's, it's an A through Z, correct? Somewhere in there, right? Hack! Right, but here we have Daniel 9, God saying, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, not some guy, not just anybody, until what? The long-anticipated and talked-about Messiah, the Prince. By the way, what is Jesus called? In Acts 5, 31, in New Testament, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Life. Messiah the Prince, watch, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming Prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. And until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He, who? Messiah, the prince, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decree destruction is poured out on the desolator. And some of you are like, what? It's okay. Obviously, this, this is something we can unpack for years even, but you can get the bulk, and it's amazing. And what I want you guys to see, very important, are the six redemptive promises, and then we're going to work from there. Now, everyone, go and look up here, or look, I think it may be somewhere written down. If not, you can get these notes later. If you would switch that slide for me, B-Rad. Okay, here's what I want you to see. There were 70 weeks of years, 490 years to accomplish the redemptive purposes of Daniel 9.24. Now watch this. We're going to do this in more detail later, but all you need to know in a sense of the basics of this are this. How many years were they supposed to be in Babylon? How many years? 70 what? Days or years? So what is in Daniel's mind as he's praying? What? Days or years? Years. Now all of a sudden, they're still in sin. They haven't learned a thing and they're going to get released because God said 70 years, right? But the angel comes now and says, now I want you to know there's going to be 70 weeks of years to finish the transgression. 
They're not done sinning, and God's going to bring it to its ultimate culmination, its ultimate breaking point. Now, Gabriel says, you've got 70 weeks of years. Now, ultimately, guys, here's what you know. Daniel has in his mind 70 years. Angel Gabriel comes in this very symbolic number, 77, 70 weeks of years. Think of a week, seven days, okay? Now, you want to have, in this prophecy, each day represent a year now and not just a day. By the way, very symbolic, very Jewish Hebrew thought. There's a lot of symbolism here, but basically it's 70 times 7. What is that? 490 years, okay? So Daniel is told you've got 490 years in this unit, this prophecy to do what? These six things. And there's some consequences that follow, but guys, this is crazy. This it's something that should blow all of us away. This is not some vague thing. There's going to be a guy who does some good stuff from God. This is like Messiah the Prince. He's going to make an end of sin, bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going, to, he's going to be anointed. He's going to seal up vision and prophecy. He's going to die a violent death. He's going to make an end of sin and offering. And after he comes, this next temple is going to be destroyed. Now, I have a question. And see if you guys are following now. Follow me on this. Daniel is writing in Babylon during the 70-year exile. And is there a temple? No. Is there a city? No. So what is he being told? Messiah is going to come. He's going to die a violent death. He's going to make an end of sin. And then the next temple is going to be destroyed. There isn't a temple. There isn't one. So you're being told specific time and temple Messiah is going to come and be cut off before it's destroyed. I like that. Because if you don't know this, you can just read your history. The Romans attacked the Jews. Ultimately, they did the three and a half year war of the Romans versus the Jews. And as a matter of record, in 70 AD, the Roman armies of Titus finally made their way into the temple, destroyed, killed, sent off into slavery and had that temple on fire and took it apart, apart stone off of stone 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I, some of you guys know this, but I, I want to tell you so you can remember how this works. I was in Scottsdale. I saw a Jewish newspaper of Scottsdale. I said, well, I'm a Jew. Shalom. Right? Amen? Who are true Jews? People who are physically descended from Abraham or descendants via the promise via the promise. Those who have faith in Christ the Messiah are Jews. So I see the Jewish newspaper and I say, Shalom, and I grab it. And I see in there they have this event where this Jewish rabbi is going to come and he's going to show us how Jesus is not the Messiah. I said, awesome. I grabbed my Bible backpack and I showed up where the yarmulke had friends with me. We were the only ones there with our Bibles. And he spoke for about an hour and a half, two hours or so, and touched Nothing any Jewish Christian or Gentile Christian would show a Jew for 2,000 years to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So when it was all done, I took a beeline right to the front. I walked right up to him, and every single Jew there swarmed us, surrounded, and everybody is panting, drooling, waiting for the rabbi to thrash the Christian. And so I said, Rabbi, I want to thank you for having us here. I'm just honored to be able to sit here and just be among, among your people and... I said, so thank you for the conversation. He says, of course, of course. I said, I, I, Rabbi, I have a question for you. I said, um, 
you, know, you spoke for a while, and you didn't really bring up any verse that Jewish Christians or just Gentile Christians would, would show a Jew for the last 2,000 years to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, son, son, I touched all of them. I said, Rabbi, you, you didn't even use one that I would use. And he said, well, okay, well, like, like what? I said, well, I don't, well where do I start? <laughs> um, Daniel 9. He said, what about it? I said, well, Daniel 9 says the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be cut off, die a violent death, make an end of sin, bring an everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy. He's going to make an end of sacrifice and offering. And then the second temple is going to be destroyed. And so he's looking at the page. And I said, Rabbi, when was the temple destroyed? He says, well, everybody knows the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. I said, right. I said, Rabbi, if Yeshua is not Mashiach, who is? And so he says, and he looks up and around and everybody, everyone's looking, waiting, waiting, like smiling. They're like, watch this, watch this. And he goes, tell you what, give me your email address. I'll get back to you on this. Astonishing. Because it's so clear. It is so clear telling you when the Messiah is coming. You really can at least grasp that as you look at the page now. Messiah has to come and accomplish this before that temple's destroyed. And did he? Yes. An amazing thing. Now watch this. There were six redemptive promises listed in Daniel 9.24. Here they are. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to, br- to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Messiah the prince was to be cut off in verse 26. Messiah the prince would make a covenant with the many for seven years. Messiah the prince would put a stop to sacrifice and offering in the middle of the seven years. As a result of the 70 weeks, Messiah will bring a people to destroy the second temple and city. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you a basic explanation I did last week on the 70-week prophecy and how it fits together. And all you need to do is remember this. There is a unit of 490 years we have to deal with. It encompasses a lot of promises. Well, what is a standard, easy explanation? And I, I think the best that I've seen, just as a, as a quick look, is this. Gary DeMar, we just had him on Apologia Radio this past week. Amazing episode on the Great Tribulation. I want to encourage you guys to take a look at it. ApologiaRadio.com. Go grab that episode. It will blow you away. People said after the first day it was the best episode of Apologia Radio. It's like two-hour Bible study. It is really incredible. But listen to this on the 70 weeks. Follow this, guys. Just come back and follow right now. The most, this is, uh, this is um, DeMar quoting uh, uh, another scholar, J. Barton Payne, on this. The most noteworthy feature of Daniel's prophecy is the inspired prophetic calendar that accompanies it. Daniel predicted a lapse of 70 weeks of years, or 490 years for the accomplishing of the redemptive work in 924. The beginning point would be indicated by the commandment to restore Jerusalem in verse 25, an event that was accomplished a century after Daniel in the reign of the Persian Artaxerxes under Nehemiah. Daniel then went on to predict that from this commandment until the Messiah, there would be seven weeks and three score and two weeks or ready 69 weeks of years equaling 483 years. From 458 BC, this brings one to AD 26. 
the very time which many would accept for the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ and the commencement of his incarnate ministry. Now watch this. Verses 26 and 27 then describe how in the midst of the final week, that is the last seven-year period, and therefore in the spring of AD 30, he would bring to an end the Old Testament economy by his death. There could hardly have been a more miraculously accurate prediction than this. The 490 years then conclude with the three and a half years that remained during which period the testament was to be confirmed to Israel. Now follow this. God says from Gabriel, start counting down from this decree this many years till Messiah. How many years? 483 years. Guess where it lands? AD 26. What happened in AD 26? Jesus entered the waters of baptism where John the Baptist, the promised forerunner, baptizes him. Now, what happens in front of Israel in that moment? The Holy Spirit of God descends like a dove and the Father speaks from heaven to the world. This is the son of my love. I am well pleased in him. When was Jesus presented and anointed before the people of Israel as the Holy One, the Messiah? When? In his baptism. When did that take place? AD 26, 483 years after the decree. So watch this. If you've got 409, you guys are like, I did not come for math today. <laughs> but trust me, you want to learn this math lesson. 483 years up until Messiah the Prince. What does that leave out of 490 years? Very good. Easy, easy, right? Seven years. Now watch this. Jesus in AD 26 is presented before Israel as the anointed Messiah. Jesus says in Mark 1.14, I believe it is, he says, the time is fulfilled. Question, what time? The time of Daniel's prophecy. What did God say? This many years till Messiah. Isn't it interesting? As soon as he's baptized, he comes out of the wilderness. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The time of Daniel's prophecy. Here's the anointed one, the holy one of Israel. He comes before his people. That leaves Seven years. Now, question. Do you know that in the Bible, the phrase, the many, refers to God's people? The many. And isn't it interesting that in Daniel chapter 9, it says that this Messiah is going to make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, think for a second about Jesus' ministry. Have you read your Gospels? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Have you noticed a peculiar trend in Matthew, Matthew through the, the last gospel, John? Have you noticed that Jesus has a particular interest in the Jews? Have you noticed that when the Gentiles are like hanging out and they're coming in, Jesus isn't rejecting them, but what is he doing constantly? Reminding them that he had come for the lost sheep of Israel. Remember when the Gentiles are coming and Jesus says, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. Notice that his ministry is focused on the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. And what does Jesus say at the last supper? He says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And it says in Daniel 9, the Messiah would come make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Check it out. AD 26. Jesus is anointed as the Holy One of Israel, presented before Israel as their Messiah. How long was Jesus' ministry before he was crucified? How long? Three and a half years. Guys, what is half of seven? Three and a half. What does Daniel 9 say? Look at it with your eyes. Look at it. Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for 
one week. That's seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. Is that insane? (laughs) 483 years. It lands at his baptism. Three and a half years into Jesus' ministry, he died. Question, was he cut off? Did he die a violent death? Yes. Did he put a stop to sacrifice and offering? Yes. And did you know, and this is awesome, when you read the book of Acts, do you know how long the ministry of the apostles was to the Jews before it went to the Gentiles? Three and one half years. Is that awesome or what? Let's just start worshiping. Let's just go right now. That's crazy. It is just something, it's it's astonishing. This is all so clear, but there's more. There is more. Messiah the Prince will be cut off. All those things. Now, what I want you to do, B-Rad, put that last one up. Okay. Now, last week, I'm not going to do it all. I'll just give you the explanation quickly. Last week, we talked about the six redemptive promises. Now, what I want to do is I want to take you through them. We spent a lot of time on the first two last week, but I'll just kind of give you what it meant. To finish the transgression. Remember, remember, the Jews are in captivity for seven years. Have they learned anything? No. What is Daniel begging God for? Mercy, right? And so Gabriel comes and says, now 70 weeks of years. They haven't learned a thing. Now God says 70 weeks of years to finish the transgression. They keep breaking God's covenant. They keep breaking it. They keep breaking it. They keep breaking it. It's, I told last week, it's crazy. Like, go through the Red Sea. Enemies of God washed away. They go up into Sinai. Moses is gone for a few days. And they're like, oh, get the, work, get the golden calf. Let's go. It's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a BC era rave. They got the glow sticks and like, you know, never mind. This golden calf, right? It's just crazy. Like, they're doing this stuff. They're sinning against God. God sends prophets. They kill them. God sends men and they bring them down. They lock them up. Like, it's just this constant thing. And so Gabriel says, 70 weeks of years to finish it. And I made the claim, I think biblically, that the finishing of the transgression can be seen in Matthew 21, Matthew 23, Matthew 27, and that is this. The Jews took the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah, and they murdered Him on a tree. Pilate presents Jesus before the people. And he says, shall I crucify your king? And what do they say to Pilate, the Roman in charge at the moment? They say, we have no king but Caesar. We want Jesus, crucify him. You want to hear something really interesting? There are some ancient manuscripts that have Barabbas, his name as Jesus Barabbas. And Pilate says, who do you want, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called Messiah? And they say, give us that one. Crucify that one. Isn't that amazing? I think it's powerful. They would rather have a murderer than the Son of God who's innocent. So Pilate says, I am innocent of this man's blood. You see to it. And they say, his blood be upon us and our children. And it was. 
within a generation of Jesus' prophecy to the destruction of the temple, the blood of the Messiah was required of that generation, and they paid for it dearly. Amen? They did. But the finishing of the transgression was when God sent his son to the vineyard and they said, this is the heir, come let's kill him and take his inheritance. They took him out of the city and they killed him. And Jesus asked in Matthew 21, he asked those lead, the leadership, he said to them, he said, what's the owner of the vineyard going to do when he finds out what you've done to his son? And they're like, he'll come and destroy those miserable men. And Jesus is like, ah, uh, yeah, that's you. <laughs> Right, And they knew he was talking about them. So they're, they're mad now. They're mad. <laughs> okay, so next was one of the redemptive promises in Daniel 9 was to make an end of sin. Isaiah 53, long before Jesus comes, Isaiah 53, you have clearly the description of the Messiah's suffering for sin. He's pierced through for our transgressions. He's counted among the rebels. Jesus died publicly with rebels, but more importantly, the Father was counting him as the rebel, so that he would justify the many because he bears their iniquities. That's long before Jesus comes and long before Daniel even said this. Isaiah promised that. But the amazing thing is just clearly speaking and so easily summed up in just this. Did Jesus, the Messiah, guys, did Jesus make an end of sin on that tree? What were his words? Come on now, what were they? It is finished. Done. It's over. The atonement is complete for God's people. It is finished. The trans, it, nothing's done. I mean, left to be done. Nothing is left. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. We read last week. You can read it later. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18 teaches very clearly that this Messiah has offered one sacrifice forever. And there are no more. There's no more. The temple, the priesthood, all the sacrifices were dress rehearsals for the big day. Right? They're just dress rehearsals. They weren't the thing that did... Ultimately, anything they were pointing towards this one who was coming that was going to finally be the temple himself. He was going to be the high priest forever. He was going to be the one that was the perfect sacrifice. Everything the old covenant system was trying to point you towards was Jesus. I, I, I like how this is put. If you, to get what I'm saying, it's this: is that if you can picture your Old Testament and your New Testament laid open. And you can picture Jesus standing in the center, right here, with the sun on this side. I should reverse it, shouldn't I? Reverse it, old, new. The sun beaming down on Jesus, he would cast a shadow into the Old Testament. But he's the substance. The shadow's not the substance. He's the substance. The old covenant order with the temple and the priests and the animals was the shadow of Jesus, not the substance. And when Jesus comes, he makes an end of it all. He sits down once and for all with a finished sacrifice, which is, by the way, why you and I can be in this room today with no fear of wrath, with no fear of condemnation, because you can look back in history at a cross and a God as a man that took your sins and mine and dealt with them once and for all. My sins and your sins as the people of God are done and over, past, present, future, complete because of that once for all sacrifice. There is no more sacrifice, Yom Kippur, no more day of atonement every year to remind you of how sinful you are and everything else because you got a high priest that intercedes forever. There is never condemnation again, not ever. And that's why Paul says with such puffed up chest in, in Romans chapter eight, he says, who's going to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's raised and he intercedes for you. What can separate you from the love of God? And the answer is ultimately what? Nothing. Nothing can. Who's going to bring in a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He's declared you righteous, which brings us to this next point. The third redemptive promise in 924 of Daniel was this, to make reconciliation for iniquity. The word is kafar. The Hebrew word kafar has to do with reconciliation. By the way, you already know it. It just sounds different. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is how, is, it's, the word there, Kippur, is kafar, the day of atonement. So the word here is to make reconciliation for iniquity. And I'll bring you to a verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. That's New Testament, to the right of your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Many of you know this, but I want to show you the context of how Jesus fulfills this as Messiah the Prince. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, get there. If you don't know this, you should. Now watch this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I'll tell you what, that is some, those are some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. What is that telling you? That the message of this Messiah, the message of the gospel, guys, for 2,000 years, past and going forward, is just simply this. God was reconciling the world to himself through this Messiah. And the call is, be reconciled to God. Because God was, in Messiah, making a reconciliation for sin. What was the promise of Daniel 9? He would, it would finish the transgression, make an end of sin, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. And isn't it interesting, guys, that on the lips of the apostles in 2 Corinthians is the message to the world, reconciliation, reconciliation, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. And they can be real with it because it's done. They didn't point to different uh, systems and structures you had to start putting in place now to be reconciled. Like, be reconciled to God. Okay, how do I do that? Well, have a seat. Let me give you the list. Here's the stuff you need to do. Here are, they said, be reconciled to God. He was the Messiah. He's righteous. He died. He rose. Repent and believe the good news. Calling people to be reconciled to God. Now next, what was another promise, guys, of Daniel chapter 9? Besides reconciliation for iniquity was this, to bring in everlasting righteousness. I have a question. Did Jesus, who was the righteous one, when he made an end of sin in the place of God's people, does he bring into your life and mine, does he bring in eternal righteousness? What's the verse say? You just read it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what did it say? He, that's the Father, made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Guys, I can't go into all the details today, but just simply read Romans chapters 3 and 4. If you want to know what the message of the gospel is about, it's about reconciliation with God. It is about righteousness. And here's the glory of the gospel. Are you ready for this? The glory of the gospel is that through faith in this Messiah, not in you, not in your works, not in what you have done or will do or can do, whatever. The message of the gospel is that God was chasing sinners to make an end of their sin and to make reconciliation with them on his behalf. He accomplished it. And that in this Messiah's work, as complex and as glorious as it was, that long before it happened, God was saying, I'm going to do all these things. And one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to bring an everlasting righteousness. And the glory of the gospel is that because God counted his son as the guilty one, he credits to your account righteousness. It's called the beautiful exchange. That's how the ancient Christians referred to it. The beautiful exchange. It's what my tattoo's about. So Daniel 9.24, right there. My sin for his righteousness. That's why I got it. I got the tattoo because that is really the substance of Daniel chapter 9. My sin for his righteousness. He was the righteous one who made the perfect sacrifice and sat down forever. And if you're in him, if you're in him, you are covered, clothed in his righteousness. Do you have righteousness? Let me ask you a question. Will Jesus ever stop being righteous? That's eternal righteousness, baby. Because if you're in him, you are covered in it. You are hiding in Christ. Your guilty life credited to him on that cross. His righteousness credited to you through faith. That's eternal righteousness and reconciliation and an end of sin. And guess what? It also was the finishing of their transgression because they murdered the son of God on a tree. So there you go. Now, now, this is where, this is where it gets really cool. Watch, this is, this is you got to follow this because it's interesting. To seal up vision and prophecy. That was the, that was the fifth redemptive promise, right? In, in 924. To seal up vision and prophecy. That's big time. That is big time. So I, there's so many p- ways I could show you this. I thought the best way, as I was praying about how to present this to you guys, I thought the best way to present this to you would to bring you to something that was actually showing you the big picture with Jesus touching Daniel 9 the whole time. So do this. Go to Luke 21. It's right. You can see it right up there. Luke 21. You're seeing the verses that I was prepared to bring you guys to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So Luke 21. And by the way, again, I want to just commend to you guys the last episode we did with Gary DeMar, where we really walk through the Great Tribulation passages. Now, listen, there's some parallel passages you can go to with this. I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. I want to actually help you guys know your Bibles. Luke 21 is a parallel passage with Matthew 24 and Mark 13. So you can just write that even on the side there. It's a parallel passage with Mark 13 and Matthew 24. But what I wanted to do is I want to show you Jesus saying the sealing up of vision and prophecy. Now, Luke 21, and you can start in verse 5. Now, can I give you a background for a second, just quickly? Jesus, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, all of a discourse, he has laid the, the straight-up smackdown on the religious leadership. He calls them brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. He tells them that they're religious hypocrites. He warns them that all the blood of the righteous 
from Abel to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is going to be upon that generation. He walks out. He says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus, the Messiah, cleanses the temple and he walks out. And essentially he's saying, leprosy, let it be desolate. The the role in the Old Testament of a priest was even to go to a house to see if it was essentially in a bad state where it needed to be seen as desolate. And Jesus cleanses the temple, walks out and says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. He goes to the Mount of Olives and he's seated and the disciples are freaking out. They're freaking out because Jesus says the house is desolate. The temple's going to be destroyed. And they're like, when shall these things be? Because Jesus says there's not going to be left one stone upon another. They said, when shall these things be? What's the sign of your coming? And the end of the age, not the end of the world. Part of the reason Christians over the last 200 years have been essentially duped into believing such an, uh, an eschatology that's off is we've thought of this passage as an end-of-the-world scenario. It wasn't the end of the physical cosmos. It was the end of the old covenant age. When the temple is destroyed, the covenant is no longer speaking to them of old covenant. It's gone. The age is over. We're in the age of the Messiah now. But look what Jesus says in Luke, 5, Luke 21, 5. As some were talking about the temple complex, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of... Wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, these things must take place first, but the end won't come right away. By the way, these things happened in the first century between 30 and 70 AD. Then it says, verse 10, Then he told them, Nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you. Who's he talking to? them guys he's not talking to you he was talking to them they will lay their hands on you and persecute you they will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons anybody in here planning on getting handed over into like beth shalom down the street like they're gonna like round up christians in america and throw them over to beth shalom like we're like what are we doing in the synagogue why are we in here being persecuted (laughs) sorry um (laughs) they will hand you over to synagogues and prisons and you'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to an opportunity for you to witness there. Therefore, make up your minds not to repair your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. Here we go. Verse 20. Are you ready? It's incredible. You have to see it to believe it. You got to look at it. Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Guys, what did Daniel 9 talk about? The Messiah was going to come. He was going to accomplish all these things. And what was going to happen to the temple? It was going to be destroyed and desolation. And what is Jesus saying now? He's saying when you See Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. And those who are in the country must not enter it because these are the days of vengeance 
to fulfill all the things that are written. What did Daniel 9 say? That one of the redemptive promises in 924 was what? End of transgression. Uh, sorry, finished transgression. End of sin. Reconciliation for iniquity. Are you ready? And what else? To seal vision and prophecy. What does Jesus say here? He's saying, guys, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. You guys want to know something of history? Pretty awesome. The Roman armies of Vespasian are the first ones that attack the city. Now, Josephus is a Jew who does not believe in Jesus. He was a Pharisee, a general in the army against the Romans. He records for us the events of the destruction of Jerusalem. You can read it. Go get Josephus, his antiquities. You can read it yourselves, guys. He gives you the eyewitness account of what Jesus describes. That's awesome. Eyewitness account we have today of what Jesus describes here. Well, guess what? We know from history that when the armies of Vespasian came and surrounded the city, they came against the city, and then all of a sudden, there was so much stuff going on in Rome that the armies backed away. And the Jews, Josephus Accords, they were like, yeah! Like, like puffing up their chest. They're like, that's right, Romans! Be gone with your leather straps and your swords and your delicious... <laughs> they're just, you know, they're making... They're, I don't even know. They, they were like pompous, arrogant. Yeah! But you know what? Guess what, as a matter of record, the Christians in Jerusalem did? They fled. And you know where they went? They went to a town called Pella. Now, I have a question for us. Why in the world were the Christians fleeing Jerusalem when the armies backed away? Because Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee! So the Christians see, and then they back away, and the Christians were like, we're out of this place. <laughs> and guess what happened? As soon as the Christians fled the city, the Roman armies came back. And they resacked the temple, and that was that long war with the Romans and the Jews, where eventually, guess what happened? The Romans made their way in, the blood was flowing in the streets, they were slaughtering people. And the temple was set fire to, and guess what happened? They wanted to get to the gold between the cracks. So they took the temple apart, stone off of stone. And the generation that Jesus had promised would not all die before these things took place. They were alive, many of them, when that destruction took place. They had not all died before that temple was destroyed. By the way, Daniel said the Messiah would do all this before that temple was destroyed. But notice that Jesus says this. Here's what I wanted to get you to. These are the days of vengeance in order that all that was written would be fulfilled. What did Daniel say? To seal up vision and prophecy. Jesus says, first century, these are the days of vengeance in order that all that was written will be fulfilled. Sealing up vision and prophecy is that. Now, last one, ver uh, number six, and we're done for today. That it would be that it would seal up the vision and prophecy promised in the Old Testament. That it would come to its completion and its final culmination. And, and it was promised in reference to Messiah and the redemptive work. That's, that's the promise there. So let, and we'll get to the number six now, to anoint the most holy. Everyone open your Bible now to Mark chapter 1.
Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Now, a couple things I want you to notice, and you can take your finger and you can run it down the page. Okay? As Mark 1 opens up, what does he do? He starts with prophecy. He says, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. And then it says what? The messenger is coming. So there's the promise of the forerunner. And now Mark shows you John, verse 4, came baptizing. He's the forerunner. And then it says, the one is coming. John says, verse 7, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. And then it says in verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan. Guys, what happened in his baptism? The Holy Spirit descended like what? A dove. The heavens cracked open. And the Father said upon Jesus, this is the son of my love. I'm well pleased in him. There was his anointing. Now watch. As you move down to Mark chapter 1, I want you to move to verse 21. Same chapter. Mark has clearly got something in his mind here. Mark 1, 21. Then they went into Capernaum. And right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Ready? The Holy One of God. Notice that Mark is saying, forerunner, Messiah comes, he's anointed, baptized. And then all of a sudden you've got him making sure that he brings out in the same passage the fact that Jesus is being called by demons, the Holy One. But Daniel 9 says, as one of the promises, one of the parts of the 490 years, the 70 weeks, was to anoint the most holy. Who were the demons calling the most holy? Jesus. He's the anointed most holy one. In some of your translations, Daniel 9 says to anoint the most holy place. The, the passage itself actually says the most holy. Okay? And so I would say, along with many commentators, that Daniel is referencing here the actual anointing of Jesus as Messiah happening within this time frame. And so I want to just do this. Okay, so what? I don't even, I don't know if it's just me, but when I, when I see things like this, it causes fear to fall over me. I I mean, it does because this takes it out of the realm of like theory (laughs) about God, about the future. And it is absolutely terrifying. If you consider it for a second, it's beautiful. There's no fear for a Christian of wrath, but be honest. This is terrifying. It's terrifying in this sense. It shows that the God that we're talking about here is one to be reckoned with. That's the truth. He's the God who controls all of history. And history is truly his story. And this story encompasses something that's going to bring him glory. And it shows that God hasn't got history just sort of like bobbing along in these random bits and pieces but that he has all of the big issues, the macro issues he's in charge of. And all of these smaller issues, every detail, 
is all in his hands. Like for just for example, have you, have you considered this for a second? That in Acts, it says the prayer of the Christians was, was something like this. I'm, gonna, I'm not quoting it directly, but, but the prayer of the Christians was gathered in this city against your holy servant Jesus was Pontius Pilate, the peoples of Israel, the Gentiles, to do whatever your hand had predestined to occur. Consider for a second, watch. God didn't make anybody kill Jesus. He didn't put a gun to their back and say, kill Jesus. They did what they wanted to do, and God was allowing them, decreeing, I'm going to give you what your hearts desire, and to kill my son. I'm going to give it to you for his predetermined purposes. Consider for a second that God promises all the details of history in Daniel 9 about the Messiah, end of sin, reconciliation for iniquity, sealing up vision and prophecy, finishing transgression, anointing the most holy. He's cut off. He makes an end of sacrifice and offering. And then the second temple is destroyed. And I want you to consider for a moment that God is in charge of every single detail along the way. Every detail. If you consider for a second the amazing details of Jesus' birth, the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, that conception of the fact that Jesus had people trying to kill him as a baby and that God warns Joseph in a dream to get free to go to Egypt to get rescued so they're safe. And then they go back to Nazareth and then they're in Nazareth. And all through Jesus' life, he's walking along, he's preaching, he's teaching and people wanted to kill him lots of times. How many times do people pick up stones to kill Jesus? A lot. And you know what never happens? They never do. Why? Because it's not God's timing. God says, okay, now you can. And it was when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to betray me. They're going to kill me. And three days later, I will rise again. And when, he, when he's ready to go to Jerusalem, he then gives Judas permission. Go ahead now and do what you're going to do. It's when God says history is going to happen this way. Judas couldn't even betray Jesus until Jesus says, now, think about it. Daniel 9 is something that is spectacular. I mean, I would argue that if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you really do know God, like all of us. It's a suppression of truth. What you don't need is more information. But I want to say to the unbeliever and to the believer, Daniel 9 is terrifying. It's terrifying because it also shows a God that's not to be trifled with. And it is an amazing display of the love of God. Because you know what's amazing? What should happen to Israel? They should die, <laughs> right? What should happen to me? I should die for my sin. I should be condemned as what I'm owed. I deserve it. Everything I've ever done, I wanted to do. It was in my heart to do. All my sin is my sin. I own it. What do I deserve? I deserve death. What did every person in this passage deserve? Death. Who took it instead? God. He's an amazing God. And when I say not to be trifled with, and he's a God to be reckoned with, I mean that also in a sense of response. Because I don't think we should take Daniel 9 and it should just be a heady thing like, whoa, that all fits together. It is all powerful. Daniel 9 has to be something you hear and a fear of God has to fall over you, a healthy, reverent fear of God that actually responds now. It's the kind of fear of God, and I'll just be transparent, it's the kind of fear of God where I was contemplating what is in my life that is distracting me from you right now. That's the kind of fear. It's the kind of fear that says this God is amazing and true and awesome and powerful, and he is the God you are all going to face. 
and he controls every detail. And when I was contemplating, I was praying over this, I'm meditating on it. I had this moment of just this, I think, holy and reverential awe and fear that sort of collapsed over me. And the first thing I thought was, God, what is in my life right now that needs to be removed to worship you more fully? Daniel 9 has to be responsive. You have to be responsive to Daniel 9. Because you know what? As much as God determines the end from the beginning and Daniel 9's parts and pieces perfectly fitting to show Jesus is the Messiah, he also has perfectly ordained every moment of your life. As a Christian, you can say, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And if you're not a believer in here today, you've never fully turned from sin to Christ to be joined to him, to experience everlasting righteousness and reconciliation with God. As a Christian, you have to contemplate and think about that. And as an unbeliever, you need to think about if you have not been there, you need to turn to Christ now. Here's the message. Can I give it to you? He's the Messiah. He's God and man. He's righteous and he's holy and he died for sinners and he rose from the dead. The call is this, repent, turn from your sin to this Messiah, put your faith in him as Savior and Lord, trust in him for forgiveness and salvation. Come, die, be joined to him in his death and rise with him in his resurrection. Come and be made alive. That's the call of the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for this time, the time we've had with you, God, in Daniel 9. I know, God, that, um, that there's so much more that could be said about this, but I want to pray, God, that you take every syllable that was spoken God, only you could do this. Only you by your spirit can convict the heart of your people to put aside simple and trivial things and to, Lord, come to be renewed into a place of true depth with you. And, and only you, God, can turn the heart of stone to flesh. So I want to pray, God, that you would deal with us now. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that you would convict them even now to turn from sin to trust in your son. And for those of us that do, that in this moment, you will shape our hearts, Lord, and our minds and free us right now of anything, Lord, that we've put in your place. In Jesus' name, amen.